Coming up, half-day MPs plan yet another getaway as the Brexit deadlock continues. We'll look at the prospects for a sudden breakthrough as mainstream parties prepare for the mother of all electoral kickings. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast, which reaches you as the European election campaign surges to fever pitch or wheezes towards the finish line. At this stage, the only thing that is likely to downgrade Theresa May's humiliation from total to merely abject would be some sort of miraculous breakthrough on Brexit. This would appear to be about as likely as the UK winning the Eurovision Song Contest. But insurmountable odds have never stopped Theresa May before from endlessly banging her head against the same brick wall and hoping this time for a different outcome. So as cross-party talks between the Conservatives and Labour stagger on with no sign of progress, Downing Street announces that at the start of June, it will nevertheless still table a bill to implement a Brexit deal. That would be the Brexit deal that, at the moment, doesn't technically exist. Theresa May's deal has, of course, already been rejected three times. Those cross-party talks were meant to be coming up with an alternative, which seems distinctly unlikely. And even the Prime Minister's own Brexit secretary has admitted her deal will be dead if her latest gamble doesn't pay off. Presumably, it will take her political career with it. Let's at this stage bring in Robert Meakin. Robert, apparently, according to Theresa May, at least, it's imperative that the withdrawal agreement bill goes through the Commons at the start of June in order to get the UK out of the European Union by July. I mean, this is fantasy land stuff. There is no Brexit deal to be ratified. There is seemingly no prospect of a Brexit deal that can get through the commons and yet we're going to have this vote that even people in theresa may's own cabinet admit it's the life or death moment for her brexit deal and with it presumably her prime ministership yes it does seem to have reached that inevitable point of the the mad leader left standing with just a couple of people in the bunker below it's very hard to see how she's going to achieve this uh, elusive success presently is there any other strategy that you know cunning ruse that she's got in her pocket that we don't understand does she still think that perhaps dealing with labor will somehow trigger her own side to think right we better get this deal over for our prime minister will somehow get the dup back on side i don't know i'm guessing to be honest you, you probably have to conclude that no it's a prime minister who's run out of ideas is banging her head against a brick wall and is heading now for that inevitable oblivion it's worth pointing out that this is not meaningful vote for on the deal itself this is a law that would enact a brexit deal were it to miraculously appear out of thin air at some point even if some sort of deal did emerge in these cross-party talks and as you say that seems extremely unlikely now it would be doomed from the start. Jeremy Corbyn has said this week, face-to-face apparently to Theresa May, that he doesn't think that she can deliver on that compromise agreement, that they might reach a deal, but it doesn't mean that it's going to get through because there are dozens of Tory MPs who will refuse to back any deal that was capable of winning the support of Jeremy Corbyn. So it's a bit of a catch-22 situation. You know, Labour won't support the government unless there's a deal. The government's own MPs, many of them, won't back a deal if Jeremy Corbyn is on board with it. What the Labour leader wouldn't say is that he would have exactly the same problem getting Labour MPs to back a deal 
with the Tories, particularly if it doesn't include some sort of confirmatory referendum, which, as we all know, he doesn't want to do. Brexit occurred at the worst possible time because the state of the two main political parties, but obviously the, what's happened with the Labour Party in recent years and Jeremy Corbyn seizing control and the grip that the right increasingly has over the Conservatives. It's made any prospect of any a realistic uh, cross-party arrangement seem, you know, just very, very far away and, frankly, a pipe dream. I'd also say that it, it, it just gives Corbyn a temporary get-out clause as well because it's obviously not in his heart of heart to be supporting a Theresa May-led Brexit. So the fact that he can now say, look, I'm afraid you're clearly not going to be Tory leader or Prime Minister in probably the weeks ahead, so there's little point in us really doing a deal with you anyway. It does give Corbyn a bit of breathing space. Our current political caste list will not allow this to go through and that is why it, it's, it's failed as a political system. Whether you're pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit, at the end of the day, this was voted for and we have a political system with our two main parties in their present state who are just unwilling, refusing, unable to get this through. No one is going to give anything. As you've said, I think, rightly before, it's because both sides still think they're in with a chance of a win. That's why I think we're in such a state where no one is budging. I mean, we've nudged to a position where... Uh, and this is something Stephen Barclay said this week in saying that if if this vote at the beginning of June goes against the, the government, then that's it. The Theresa May Brexit deal is dead. There is no point in trying to revive it. But he has resurrected as possible future options the things that even six months ago or nine months ago were unimaginable horrors. You know, he is saying if that happens, then the choices are we leave without a deal or we revoke Article 50. So we leave without a deal, which everybody bar the sort of extreme Brexiteers, the Nigel Farage end of politics, thinks will probably be quite catastrophic for the economy, or we revoke Article 50, which whatever side of the fence you're on will be pretty catastrophic for democracy. Yeah, and, and now the, the political narrative has obviously shifted because people know that uh, Theresa May is coming to the end. So Theresa May's Brexit is something of irrelevance, really. Yes, people are fascinated with the drama of seeing a prime minister in her final days and weeks, but the argument has overtaken her. It's gone, it's dead in the water, the deal that she's tried to, to get through. We're now setting out the, the battleground for the next stage, but these battles are still to be fought. Theresa May's Brexit, forget about it. Meanwhile, it's all just ground to a halt at Westminster. The House of Commons sat for three and a half hours on Monday. Without movement on Brexit, there isn't anything for them to do. Now, you might think that our MPs would want to busy themselves with things like the funding crisis in local government, the implications for social care. We've been told this week that there are care deserts in parts of the UK where there is not a single care home bed for vulnerable elderly people. Maybe they'd like to do something about universal credit, but instead they just keep having half days. And on the day that the European elections are taking place, the 23rd of May, the Commons begins a 12-day break. 
Now, that is probably designed to stop Tory MPs from plotting in dark corridors once the results come in. But it doesn't exactly inspire confidence that our leaders are working night and day to resolve our biggest peacetime crisis in living memory. And when you look at the timetable between now and the Brexit deadline at the end of October, normally Parliament would break up for about six weeks from the middle of July, then come back for maybe... 10 days in September. Then it's off to the seaside for the party conferences. And then they actually return properly in about the second week of October. Now, that's not very long before the new Brexit deadline. When that Halloween deadline was agreed, Donald Tusk, in a sort of pleading tone of voice, said, please don't waste this time. And I don't think they were listening. The holiday arrangements of our politicians in the House of Commons are both generous and very eccentric. I think it'd be it'd be safe to say. Now, I'm not someone who's you know anti MPs. I mean, I think a great deal of them work extremely hard, but this is inexcusable. These are extraordinary times. Work extraordinary hours, to be brutally frank. It's no time for having long summer recess. It's no time to be sunning yourself in Mauritius, wherever you're going to be going. It, it is. It is time to be doing this miserable dog work because that's why you were brought to the House of Commons in the first place. Well, assuming Robert's hardline stance on politicians' holidays doesn't become government policy, Tory MPs will be spending the days after their second electoral kicking of the month in their constituencies, face-to-face with the furious voters who have just had their say, and well within earshot of the local party workers, who it's fair to say are not overflowing with joy either. Now, there may be around a week of campaigning left, but the Tories have basically given up. One minister this week said that this election is going to be the ultimate protest vote, and a series of polls suggested the Conservatives will smash some records by recording their worst ever performance in a nationwide vote. We should remember, Robert, as we look at these polls, that the Conservatives are technically still the party of government. Admittedly, as we were just saying, that government isn't actually doing anything, but they are in power. And yet the polls put the Tories somewhere between 10 and 13 percent obviously behind the brexit party but also behind labor behind the liberal democrats potentially the tories could finish fifth behind the green party the conservatives the fabled election winning machine of decades gone by fifth in a national poll potentially behind the green party the huge chunk of the tory party membership of its elected representatives don't want them to perform well in this european election they already are essentially either in name or not in name our brexit party supporters they've gone over they want to see their own party punished you even have mps secretly planning to vote for nigel farage's brexit party that's how desperately divided how desperately dispirited they truly are and i think until there's probably a, a, a tory leadership contest the new leader comes in I, I don't think morale is going to improve at all you can't help thinking that the stars are aligning here into a proper end game for theresa may and yes i know we've said that so many times i ought to just have a tape that i can just hit a button and it just goes well obviously this is the end of theresa may's prime minister because we've said it a million times but she is going to lead the conservatives to presumably their worst ever national poll performance 
that is going to be massively humiliating. Then, as soon as MPs come back, she is going to lead them into presumably another defeat on a key Brexit vote, which, as we were saying before, even her own ministers are saying will kill her deal. Now, at that stage, surely you have crossed the point at which you have got to go. It's been a long and painful political death for the Prime Minister. But as you say, you can only take so many hits, even when you're as durable and stubborn as Theresa May. I think surely now, you think in the next few weeks, we could be talking days, we could be talking weeks, but it's certainly not long away now that, that it's over for her. Just to add to Theresa May's woes, or the woes of whoever ends up taking over in the, in the short or indeed long term, if Nigel Farage is serious about wanting to run Brexit party candidates in the general election and if they can maintain a decent level of support into into that election whenever it comes then that throws all the past predictions that you've made up in the air because suddenly you have a big block of voters traditionally tory who are potentially going to vote for someone else and split the right wing vote now in places where tories only have narrow majorities that would be enough to hand those seats to Labour. Now, look, some Labour voters are toying with the Brexit party as well, but inadvertently, Nigel Farage could be a massive boost for Jeremy Corbyn and his prospect of becoming Prime Minister. You think all those years that that anti-conservative votes have been split between Labour, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, whatever, that is now potentially going to happen to the Conservative Party. Let's just go on the basis that the Brexit party do as well as as people are expecting at the European elections. I think it'd be very difficult to say, well, there you are. Thanks, boys and girls. Now back in your box. That's just not going to happen. They're going, they, they will be, they'll be holding sway. I think that they'll, they'll see the potential influence they'll have over the, the future of the Conservative Party. Let's be frank, there'll be a lot of Conservative MPs and members who will feel just as aligned to them as the, as the Conservative Party. So I, I, could, I can potentially see some kind of merging of, of that force uh, slightly further down the line. I fall into that camp where I've always been fairly cynical in the view that look for all the hysteria for all the excitement that comes in between general elections when it really comes to the crunch when it really comes to the battle the old tribes come back together the conservative tribe and the labor tribe with the liberal democrats the scottish nationalists obviously have come up in recent years as as the other players but it would be very foolish and presumptuous right now to say that's the way it's going to play out next time because we are we're in the most extraordinary political period for decades you see i think this is the really really interesting long-term implication not just of the result of of this eu election but of the consequences of brexit has brexit permanently broken the traditional way in which millions of people identify themselves politically because for decades people have identified quite often for life as either conservative or labor people often choose what party they support they identify with that party and they never change their vote but now people identify as leave or remain and a lot of people choose their party affiliation sort of through that prism now if as with all those other examples we can talk about in the past that's temporary then you know the mainstream parties will get a kicking in the european elections brexit will eventually come to an end and we'll get back to normal but if it's not temporary if it has broken that link that people have with with the parties they vote for then we are in for some really interesting but also very unstable elections in the years ahead the two giant parties 
they were both broad churches. I mean, you know, a, a Conservative Party that had a Ken Clark and a Michael Heseltine in it, also having a John Redwood, obviously a Margaret Thatcher. You had Labour having sort of like Tony Blair, Dennis Skinner in the same party. And that was accepted. That was, that was just the norm that you had these various factions in those parties. But I'm not sure that the modern political debate, mainly, as you say, because of Brexit, mainly because of the Remain uh, leave argument, whether it just allows such cooperation, such understanding, uh, such width to parties anymore, you know, whether, whether that can ever return. Maybe it will in time. Maybe those big old beasts will just repair themselves. But as of now, it just seems that so much damage has been done. You just get the sense there's going to be a, a newer landscape at the end of this. Well, on the other side of the Brexit divide from Nigel Farage, the three-way battle for votes goes on, with the recent polls putting the Lib Dems on about 15%, the Greens on around about 10%, Change UK really starting to fade away a bit at around 5%. Now, Robert, you and I have spoken in the last couple of podcasts about the, the idiocy of there being three nationwide parties all competing for the Remain vote, the massive PR victory it hands or will hand to Nigel Farage when the results are announced over the bank holiday weekend. Let's just look at a couple of the things that have come out of this during the campaign. And, and, and the real surprise is that that, that fading away of change uk so quickly you know down to five percent down to three percent in some polls even in in remain strongholds like london for example in scotland you know which voted to stay in the european union the main change uk candidate for the european elections has defected to the liberal democrats and said that if people want to vote to stop the uk leaving the eu they ought to vote for the lib dems i mean there was so much excitement and promise around the idea of a new party of breaking the mold all this kind of stuff and it just it's not working no it's curious i mean i i like lots of people i thought well this could this could be quite a a rough few weeks for liberal democrats i think when change uk were formed you thought well the liberal democrats have performed in a fairly dreary way in opinion polls despite being the most fiercely defiant pro-remainers they weren't didn't seem to be getting much thanks for it from the electorate and yet then they they finally benefited, of course, at the recent local election, and they're clearly still benefiting from quite a bounce. And I don't know if it's uh, if it's if it's down to sort of brand recognition, whether Change UK just haven't been able to get their message across. Because let's be frank, there's very little between them in terms of what they're they're trying to say. I consider Change UK to essentially be a sort of jazzed up, modernised, sexier version of Liberal Democrats. That's what I thought they were going to try to do. And you imagined in time that maybe that might morph into some new sort of centrist force with all parties involved. But it's interesting that the actual, the, the old brand, relatively old brand, the Liberal Democrats, is the one now again holding sway. Well, meanwhile, the People's Vote campaign has actually endorsed Labour's position on a second referendum, even though it's painfully obvious to literally everybody else that the Labour leadership is not going to support a second referendum. The People's Vote website says, it, it sort of rates every party, and says Labour is backing a People's Vote. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's evidentially clearly not the case. Now, I assume that the People's Vote campaign doesn't want to alienate the Labour supporters within it or is clinging to this 5% chance that maybe the party might suddenly swing behind sort of full-throated support for a second referendum. You know, we, we talked a, a while ago about how the Conservatives are, are, are going to have this enormous kicking in the European elections. We shouldn't forget the Labour vote will be squeezed as well, and it will actually be squeezed in both directions because it's Brexit-supporting voters 
don't trust Labour and think that they're somehow going to not deliver Brexit, and its Remain voting supporters think that it's going to deliver Brexit. And so they're, they're being pulled in both directions, half of the Labour votes being seduced by Nigel Farage, the other half by Vince Cable. I don't really want to conjure up the impression of being seduced by Vince Cable. But let's go with that image. He's a good dancer and everything. Who knows? He sashays his way across the floor. Labour voters being seduced by Vince Cable. There you are. There's your mental picture. Well, yeah, and if I can use, uh, you know... uh a sea-based sort of analogy here. I think of Corbyn, when I, when I think of Brexit now and how he handles it, is this bearded chap on his boat with his small crew around him, this massive storm, and I think, what's the strategy now? And I just don't think there is one anymore. It's got, the elements are too strong, you can't control them. And I really, I just suspect, if you're Jeremy Corbyn, it's like, well, this, we're, we're going to get smashed up, there's going to be all sorts of carnage, but at the end of that, our enemies could be up in flames as well. What can we grab at the end of it or when the battle is over amid the rubble is that when i'm going to get my chance well finally today let's talk about another uh, labor leader it is 25 years ago this week since the death of john smith now this is a name that may not actually mean a lot to particularly younger listeners to this podcast. John Smith had only been the Labour leader for two years, but he'd been around in Labour politics a lot longer, and his death at the age of just 55 robbed the country of somebody who was close to certain of becoming its next Prime Minister. Robert, I have a bizarre little personal story for this, actually. On the day that John Smith died, I was sitting in the press gallery in the House of Commons for the first time. I was a student. I was on a placement at the Press Association, the big news agency. And I went into their offices, which is still on Fleet Street in those days. It was pandemonium. Ambulance had been called to John Smith's flat. Nobody knew quite what had happened. He had had a heart attack before then the confirmation that he had died and this was the day that i was due to be shown around the office at westminster and sitting on prime minister's questions i think so i went down there and saw that generation of political leaders you know just in tears this weird sense of shock as you as you went through the place and then the tributes that were paid in the house of commons that day I mean, John Smith was going to be prime minister. The Labour Party was significantly ahead of the Conservatives in the polls. He would have been prime minister. It'd have been extraordinary if he hadn't been, wouldn't it? Let's be honest. Just remembering the direction the Labour Party took then after after Smith's death. I, I, I think people... Lots of people in the Labour Party I know have, have often liked to play fantasy politics and imagine that Smith premiership. And what they like to imagine was that yes, this was a this was this was still going to be a modernised, street savvy, electoral machine winning Labour Party, but perhaps it wouldn't have lost some of the socialist principles that were rather airbrushed by Tony Blair as he hurtled towards that amazing victory in 1997. A lot of people went on that journey with Blair because, of course, they were bringing down the Conservative government. The Labour Party hadn't hadn't won an election in in donkey's years before then, and suddenly Blair was decapitating Tories left, right and centre. So people went along with it, often against their own political instincts, really, but thought, OK, we'll just grin and bear this for now. There was always that sort of morning really that the Labour Party could have won, could have been in power 
for a number of years, just as they were under Tony Blair, but without sacrificing some of the core principles that they were accused of abandoning. Well, there is, the, you say, there is this fascinating what if you can play that, that you know, Labour would probably have won that next election, but not on the gargantuan scale that Tony Blair did. It wouldn't have been new Labour. It would have been modernised Labour, but it wouldn't have been that Tony Blair new Labour. But then knocking it forward, you know, would a Prime Minister John Smith have been as close to George W. Bush as Tony Blair was? Would a Prime Minister John Smith have taken British forces into the war in Iraq with all of the disastrous consequences that that had for Tony Blair's personal reputation and for the perception of the Labour Party? And when the time came for that Prime Minister John Smith to stand down, who would have taken over? Because Gordon Brown would presumably have been Chancellor. Tony Blair would have been, I don't know, Home Secretary. And so who knows? Maybe Gordon Brown would have edged out Blair. Maybe Tony Blair would never have become Prime Minister had it not been for that moment in 1994. And it's a look. People like us can play these kind of what-if games. We should do a spin-off podcast where we just sort of speculate about what might have happened if some pivotal event hadn't happened. I'll throw a theory at you what would have happened. If Smith had won that election, and yet I think you're right, he would have seen all the flaws in terms of the Iraq war argument coming from the United States. And I don't think I don't think he would have taken us to war in Iraq. But I think when he stood down, I actually think Blair would have won the subsequent leadership contest because actually Smith would have represented still something of the old guard and I think Blair would have been well positioned actually to take over at that point and actually maybe then you'd have had a Tony Blair as a Prime Minister it wouldn't have lasted as, as long but it wouldn't have had his reputation destroyed by that disastrous decision to go into Iraq Well well, listeners if you want Fantasy Politics Podcast maybe this could be a spin-off <laughs> if you want a Fantasy Politics Podcast get in touch with us you know, we're, we're open to suggestions. Just before we go, a blatant plug for you. The European elections are happening on Thursday, the 23rd of May, but the results aren't announced until Sunday, the 26th of May, when every EU country has voted. And when they come in, I'll be doing another one of my epic turns on BBC Radio London, trying to make sense of the results. You might be now saying, Ah, oh, but Paul, I am not in London. Thank heavens for the internet. It's on the internet, as indeed is this podcast, which is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Party Games Pod and at PartyGamesPodcast.com. You can subscribe and listen back to all the past episodes. For now, though, I think we'll park our predictions there. Thank you to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.